Hello and welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Uh, my name is Roman Sifkin. I'm here in New York in the middle of the pandemic, uh, right about a mile from the epicenter. Yay, B! Um, and I'm joined uh, in um, in Portland uh, by uh, Rob Fay and our engineer Heston Hoffman. Um, and we have a very special guest on today, uh, Janice Grill, who's joining us from Vermont. She's uh, uh, an independent scholar. I believe, uh, of, of Musil and German uh, literature in general. Uh, she's a wonderful artist. Uh, I just read a short story that she wrote uh, this morning um, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, so we're really happy to have Janice on uh, to talk about um, Robert Musil and The Man Without Qualities. This is our third podcast uh, about this book. Uh, we started with, uh, you know, just taking a look at what was happening in Vienna around that time and, and modernism in general. Then we uh, we talked about the first volume, and now we'd like to talk about the second volume, which includes um, sort of kind of the conclusion of the book as it was printed, as it was published. Uh, uh, in addition, you know, there's a bunch of posthumous uh, material as well. Um, and there's a lot to talk about. So, Janice, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, welcome, yeah. Um, well, I, Thanks I'd like for to... inviting me. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Wonderful. It's, you're, you're coming through loud and clear. That's great. Um, so, <laughs> as I was just uh, telling you before we, we hit record, uh, this is such an enormous uh, book, and I'm hesitating to call it a novel, uh, it's something I'd like to talk about uh, a little bit later on, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a project. It's this project that Robert Musil uh, started um, in the 20s, in the early 20s, and went through uh, pretty much till he he his death, I believe, right in the early yes. 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and he actually uh, was about to publish parts three and four, which is uh, volume two. The way you know it's uh, we have the books right now. Um, I believe he withdrew those parts because he wanted to keep working on them. Um, and then, of course, he died. Uh, and so those parts were eventually published. And then eventually we have all the stuff that he was still working on but never really uh, submitted for publication. Uh, and I believe he left something like 100,000 manuscript pages um, uh, that that were just um, not – I mean, I think scholars are still uh, looking through them, sifting through them, right? There's there's some sort of a – he used a, a special coding mechanism to keep track of everything because such a such an incredibly lengthy and complex mm -hmm. work that he needed as a writer to keep track of everything over the decades that he was writing it. And uh, Janice, I think you have obviously a first-hand experience with this coding system. Um, and you were saying that, uh, that, that it's, it's not as complicated as we think it is? Oh, no, it's extremely complicated. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, it's not only the people and the events, but moreover, really, the themes and the, the symbols. Themes. And there are so many different symbols, sort of ciphers that are used to then suggest a whole web of other ideas and questions, philosophical and aesthetic um, questions, and uh, that, that, you know, in the notes, it's almost like um, you know, he almost anticipated the complexity that you can get with um, a cyber text. And that's mm, why the, um, the right, Klagenfurter right. Ausgabe is so incredible um, because it's 
it's a searchable database that you can, I, I sort of call it Muzil's brain, but you can follow up these connections in a way that you can't in the linear um, text. Um, but no, it's extraordinary. And, and that's also why we were talking a little bit about why we felt nervous about trying to talk about it. And I was, you know, reading over my book that I wrote um, a long time ago when I was so deeply involved and it's, it's very dense and it's, um, you know, it's difficult to try to talk about it you know, in yeah. an hour. You, um, you know, I, but I, it, 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 you know, sorry to interrupt it. It, what no, it occur, occurs to me is, you know, Roman, you you said in your intro that um, you hesitate to call it a novel. And I think mm. you, it's almost a project in a sense. And then, you know, Janice, you talk about the 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 charting to keep track of, of the various ideas, which lends to the density that a reader experiences and which certainly I experienced. And it, you know, I, sometimes I like to be a bit provocative uh, with these great books mm-hmm. and almost ask a question. I mean, you know, is this the right form? to have mm-hmm. introduced, you know, so many rich philosophical ideas. I mean, they come in waves. I mean, you, you, at, at times when I'm reading it, you know, you'll, you'll hit a chapter and his, his chapter naming are, is so, uh, uh, so sometimes very literal, but also sometimes rather clever. And you think, oh, okay, so, so I'm going to tackle this idea in this mini essay, but then, you know, you're hit with waves of philosophical ideas and it, it can be exhausting, uh, in a sense. And, you know, I, I kind of finished and moved on to, uh, like a, a drawing room play, uh, <laughs> after this, ju- just to kind of clear it out a little bit. Um, I mean, is, is this, is a, is a novel, was this the right form for a, for a man with with this with this kind of genius and in this kind of dogged inquiry? Well, I was thinking about that question also in terms of the um, relationship between um, the uh, I think it was Roman who had the question about the um, why Musil wrote this long, long, heavy novel in the sort of age of the theaton and the sort of the fragment or what is also called right the small form right small form or, or, um, but I think that, um, for me, the, um, tension between the momentary small fragmented, um, symbol or idea or theme and infinity could only be actually embodied in this endlessness. And that that's one of the themes of the novel, this, this tension between, um, one image, one idea, and a whole complex of um, contradictions and nuances that goes along with it, and the the contrast between the moment and eternity, and between particularity and universality, and all these things. So, the uh, the huge unfinished novel is, in a way, an object lesson in the question of whether momentary ecstatic experience can be lasting mm-hmm. well, and he wanted very much for it to be a novel instead of a work of philosophy because it was very important to him that the reader felt aesthetically and emotionally this conflict and this tension yeah. and the almost existential crisis that Ulrich is going through and like other modernist writers at the same time that the reader experienced this 
not just read about it didactically. Yeah. Mm. No, that that's that's very helpful because you know sometimes I, I'm reading through and I say, do I need Arnheim? Do I need <laughs> do I need <laughs> Musbrugger? Are are these characters and you know my my entry into their lives are are these necessary for for the questions that that are occurring to me that that Musil is is prodding me with? Um, I think the answer is is clearly yes. That that's why we're we're reading this novel, you know, so many decades later. But but it 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 did occur to me at times because um, mm-hmm. you know when I started reading the book initially, I thought, aha, the parallel campaign. You know, hmm. this things will really sort of um, narrative something will wise. happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I, I aha, and I and I remember thinking early on, oh, this is fantastic. The, the this is a wonderful. Uh, device to allow the narrative to unfold in various ways and to explore themes. And after a while, I realized, you know, that that was a rather uh, pedestrian thought that I got rid of. Yeah, I mean, the parallel, the parallel campaign for me is actually not not the it, it's it's a wonderful staging ground for some comic scenes. Yeah, but it's not uh, it's it's like a almost like a side thing, and it seems like the novel moves away from it uh, at least in the second volume. Um, but it, but but just to go back to what Janice was saying, it, it, the novel does have this kind of fractal feel. There's there's things, the small things that are uh, analogous, or I don't want to use parallel because that's the parallel campaign, but somehow mm. reflect the larger themes. Mm-hmm. Um, this, of course, this duality is uh, just uh, the book is just basically one pan to dual dual. I mean, just these things that are split and yet are one this this, this mm. vision between wholeness and and the parts of the whole which are by themselves also represent the whole um i think fractal uh, is is something that i believe you use in the book Janice, in your book um, i think that's actually a phrase that burton pike uses burton that pike, i quote okay. in the book yeah but I also think of it sort of as a, a holo- holograph. So you take a little slice, mm. a tiny slice, any one image, any one right. little chapterlet kind of contains the whole. And it and reminded me of, of, of Joyce. This is exactly mm. what Joyce does uh, with Finnegan's mm. Wake, where you can take uh, even just a, sometimes even a word, you know, one of Joyce's words, mm-hmm. of course, in the Finnegan Wake step type of words. And that mm. word will represent the whole book or the, the whole mm-hmm. theme of the book. Or maybe just, you know, maybe a sentence will or paragraph will just basically be the whole book in a nutshell. Um, right. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of that. And you know who else, strangely? Uh, Chuang Tzu, my favorite ancient Chinese Taoist philosopher. Oh, yes. As, as they call him. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I, I wrote down here something, um, Chuang Tzu vis-a-vis Musil. Uh, this is Chuang this is Tzu saying, saying is not blowing breath. Saying says something. The only trouble is that what it says is never fixed. The flux state mm. of sign and signified, he calls it the potter's wheel of heaven. 
mm-hmm. and he's got this imagery of uh, of like a gourd being filled with meaning. These words, and then you have these uh, words that are overspilling. That those are the real words. Uh-huh. They overspill, and as soon as they overspill, as soon as that moment passes, the gourd kind of stabilizes itself. It doesn't go back and forth anymore because it spilled all of its meaning, and then it waits mm-hmm. to get, you know, fill up with meaning again until it's overfilled and it spills out again, and you get something. But that something is transitory. It never, you can yeah. never fix it in place. Yeah. You know? So it really reminded me of Uso, right? What a wonderful image. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think that, you know, when speaking of the parallel campaign and all these sort of, uh, well, parallels, they are parallels, but I, that I, this time, I sort of understood more why it was there. Earlier, I had I'd found it kind of annoying. I mean, it's it's wonderfully brilliant and you know clever and ironic, and but I think what I found annoying was that many people just focus on that maybe because they don't get further in the book. But when I realized that, of course, it it does contain a nucleus, but only in a sort of um, funny, ironic way. The larger themes of the book, the whole idea of you know whether you can do something, whether you can come up with a one idea yeah. that will you know consolidate everything, all these sort of these things that Ulrich and Agatha are also trying to do. Um. Yes. And, and, you know, early on you start to, when you, when you aren't, when you're starting to real, you're not quite aware of the immensity of the talent of Musil, you start to think, well, the obvious uh, lower level aspiration for a novelist is to, to set, to be, uh, to create a satire, right. To satirize the, Mm -hmm. The, silly, the silliness of any bureaucracy. Um, but as you suggest, um, you know, his aims, ambitions, and talents are, are far beyond just, you know, satir- satirizing government officials. I mean, that's, that's easy stuff for <laughs> yeah, someone like you. One aspect. It's, yeah. It's also, well, it, it is, but it's also, um, in a way, a misunderstanding because he's showing us, he's not just satirizing the government officials, he's satirizing all of us, but in a, yeah. in a more um, empathic way. Um, so he, so that's especially why it's disturbing when he's pulled out of context and used as, you know, criticisms of different kind of political systems or different politicians, because the same criticisms really could be leveled against the more noble characters in the book and against all of us. But um, just in the same way that, you know, when society dreams as a whole, we dream, you know, Musburger, the sex murderer, we all contain within us aspects of all of these yes. um, seemingly extremely different people and yes. positions. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, I'm curious if you think, you know, perhaps there is one, maybe not exception to what you said, but is it, the, the one thing that I felt was was embedded in all of the searchings and lives of the characters, again, is this you know very fundamental question of like, how am I supposed to live my life? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that yeah. is that something I should get should not get too hung up on in a sense? or is that one one piece of the prism, or is that more central, do you think, to what he was? Well, I agree I I, entirely that it is the central very earnest, very serious goal. And um, yeah. this is a goal that, you know, that Mizil is, that's why, you know, when people just talk about him as a satirist or an, or an ironic writer, he's, he's actually, um, as Ulrich says at some point later in the book to Agatha, I only make fun of it because I love it. Because I love it, yes. 
this these that's true in almost everything that he makes fun of that he is in this really um long tradition of people who are trying to understand you know what um emerson called conduct of life and oh, of I, emerson I, inspired I, nietzsche and oh, goethe's self-culture and mm-hmm. i think very much um um, Schiller's idea of aesthetic education, a conduct of life that is born out of a um, what Museo later calls the utopia of motivated life, among other things, an intense presence and consciousness of new seeing and being alive, um, as Pater would say, the failure to form habits, to burn always with this hard gem-like flame. And that is this this realm of the other condition that that is so important to Museo, this mystical realm that is um, doesn't need to have religion um, attached to it, but it's an aesthetic, a realm that is a realm of, uh, that's why I brought in Schiller, it's a realm of fruitful, ethical um, play. I, I, love, that, I really, love that you mentioned Emerson. I, I love that. I yeah. love that. Um, Emerson's extremely important, and he is quoted a number of times in the book and referenced many other times without being particularly quoted. And even um, in one passage, it says um, Emerson, whom Ulrich loved, you know, and um, right. he did, and, and Mitchell did. Right, right. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of Nietzsche mentioned in the book as well. Lots of course, Nietzsche, of Nietzsche. Nietzsche mm-hmm. is, 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 uh, is a long shadow. <laughs> he casts a long shadow on that whole age. I mean, this yeah. this was not after not long after really Nietzsche was alive, um, so it's still very fresh I think in Musil's mind. Um, but again, this is a modernism. Is is, you know, we're talking about modernism here. We're talking about the new age. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I have the, I have a little funny note here from Herman Barr, one of the one of the mm-hmm. Vienna coffeehouse wits. Uh, yeah. That he, he, he you know classicism is reason plus feeling. Romanticism mm. is passions plus senses. Modernism, mm. nerves, just nerves. <laughs> so, so yeah. you can almost feel the, the that that nervousness or that I don't know exactly what it's just this this shadow over this whole novel, and I I, I call it modernism or nerves. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, obviously a shadow. It includes violence. It includes war. Um, yes. Who was it? It was Kotzea that said that this novel, in a way, was overtaken by historical events. Uh, as mm-hmm. Musil was yes. writing it, things were changing so rapidly, and and the world was coming to an end in in a sense. Um, yeah. And no wonder he wanted to keep writing it because you can't stop like that because the world keeps moving. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, about uh, metaphor, which is such a central yeah. central. Uh, theme to this, not just, not a theme really, but uh, a method uh, to the madness here. Of course, mm-hmm. metaphor is central to any artistic, aesthetic kind of enterprise, I think, at least the one, one that deals with words. Um, yeah. But I, I have this quote from uh, from Ulrich, uh, he's, he's speaking to Agatha uh, in the second volume. Um, what does a metaphor signify? A little something true with a good deal of exaggeration. But mm-hmm. then he adds, he adds, and yet I was about to swear, impossible as it may be, that the exaggeration was quite small and the reality was becoming quite large. So I, I really like that sentence, that 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 passage, just because it it uh, it deals with metaphor directly. One of the many passages that, that talk about metaphors. Um, 
but Denise, what this matter, this whole idea of metaphor, uh, which I've been thinking about even way before uh, reading Musil, yeah. just because I think as any any artist has to confront uh, the idea of metaphor at some point and and deal with it, uh, because it's it's kind of the only way. Um, not only artists, but I really, I really think everybody, including you know scientists, uh, it's it's one of the really only ways that we have of making meaning, uh, and mm -hmm. it's a little bit deceptive because a metaphor is is a deception. It's 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 a clarification and a and an obfuscation at the same time, right? It it gives you an idea of what people are talking about, but at the same time it obscures all other possible ideas or interpretations of 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 uh, whatever is being said or shown or whatever. So, um, I know your book is really, uh, I think it's subtitled, uh, The World is Metaphor, right? Uh, yeah. It's not mm -hmm. subtitled, that's, yeah. that's the title. So, yep. <laughs> I, it's a huge topic, obviously, but what do you, how do you wrap your brain around Musil's uh, yeah. usage of metaphor? Well, there are two parts. I mean, the first part is just the, the situation of modernism and the uh, writers who are trying to grapple with the new focus, I think, on, you know, interiority and things that couldn't be expressed in a um, sort of more um, inductive, positivist language. They had to find new ways of new forms um, to express things that seemed inexpressible using regular logical language. So he was trying to do that just as, you know, many of his contemporaries were doing. Um, but because he was also engaged in sort of real philosophical, um, serious philosophical thought about the, what people now call sort of the language crisis or the, um, um, the linguistic turn, he was very aware of the whole um, way that we construct meaning out of language and out of concepts. And I talk a great deal in the book about um, an essay of Nietzsche's called... Um, untruth and lying in the supermoral sense that I don't know if Musil read, but he writes almost the same thing as Nietzsche over and over again. But it's, it's the basic idea of metaphor as, as you say, something that is imprecise. You're taking two different things and you're putting them together as if they had, as if they were connected in some way. And to do that, you're leaving out many, many things. Mm. And so you're creating, um, a sort of falsehood, but a falsehood that gives us another kind of truth. Um, but Proust was fascinated with the metaphor as well um, as this sort of taking, you know, two things and putting them together was sort of, he thought they were, that was the highest experience a person could have to see likenesses. And you see how Musil does this with people. So it's a, he does it with the whole novel as a whole. So one scene is, in, in a sense, a metaphor for another scene, or one, um, the parallel campaign is a metaphor for Ulrich and Agatha's attempt. Incest is just a metaphor, he says to somebody um, who's concerned about him talking about incest. Incest might just be um, something that um, someone is interested in because they love metaphor, because what is incest? It's two related people who are similar but are different. Anyway, there's so much to say about this, but <laughs> metaphor, I just want to add another, I mean, we can talk about metaphor for the whole, you know, next couple of right, hours, but right. another really important part about metaphor for Musil is the importance of new seeing. And for Nietzsche also, that what you want to do, yes, we construct reality out of um, 
concepts and language. But what we want to do, what's most important, is that they don't become ossified. They don't become dead language. They don't become congealed metaphors or cliches. And so the creative subject's task, according to Nietzsche, is to always make new metaphors, generate and generate new variations. And this kind of goes back to the whole conduct of life thing, that you want to be new in every moment and seeing new and speaking new and creating the world new. And so the yeah. novel does that over and over and over again. And that's and also it, and why it can't stop because once you stop, you're, you also exactly. fall, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so, so I, this is my theory. I, I'm sure it's, it's, it's echoed in, in, in lots of other people's minds um, about this book that I, I, I think that maybe, I don't know if there's any intentionality behind it on, on Musil's part, but I, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's complete in its incompleteness. It is finished in its unfinishedness. It's it's done. It's it's written the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to just it just kind of peter out into nothingness because there's no there's no way there's no way you can end this. And I was thinking about um, you know I really like the philosophy of math even though I'm really bad at math, but mm-hmm. uh, you know I love Cantor and his his infinity idea of infinity. And something that struck me when I was watching this um, YouTube lecture on the philosophy of math. And uh, it struck me that uh, they were talking about Cantor's infinities and how there's various infinities and how there are, there's more – the infinity between zero and one is larger than the infinity of all natural numbers. And, and it, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> there's, 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 more, there's more stuff between zero uh-huh. and one, one and two, whatever you want to say, uh, than in the whole line of numbers going into infinity. So the way I'm thinking about this as far as the, the yeah. book is because you have this end date, the book, right? It's, it's, it's the war is about to start. It's yes. things are really going to be completely different for all these characters. Nothing, what, whatever has been going on is just going to be um, insignificant almost, in comparison to what's you know, the the gravity of the World War One um, happening as soon as supposedly this novel is ends, um, but because he set himself a definite sort of year in uh, in which this novel takes place, he could write uh, ad infinitum because yeah. he, he just this continually expanding moments that you know this one minute suddenly turns into a, a century, you know. Uh, and Absolutely. it's, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's a testament to his genius that he was able to, to do this. And it's also, uh, I think partly why it's such a dense work because he was reaching a, a limit. He, that w- that is never reachable. Um, if that makes any sense. Yes, no, absolutely. That was a really brilliant, um, explication. I, um, of course, Musial himself was a mathematician, so um, that's there's all there are all sorts of thinking there mm. that I that I don't quite understand. But indeed, within this sort of space of one year, and I mean that's really I think that's really important because a huge part of the novel theme of the novel is time and the expanding and contracting of time and the fleetingness and possible duration. And I had a phrase that I um, I say the uh, the what is it the metaphoric gosh I used to talk about it all the time but the uh, sort of the timeless spaceless metaphoric moment so within that expanding timeless spaceless 
metaphor, which is a uh, coincidence of opposites. It's mm. this sort of shimmering movement. And I also go on about still life a lot. There's a whole chapter on still life in the book. Within that, there's an infinite amount of expansion. Um, there really is. I mean, you really feel it as a reader. There's no, it's uh, unlike with, you know, a convention, conventional novel, there's a narrative, there's a beginning, middle and end. You don't f particularly feel this even a beginning. I mean, it's just kind of, it's just kind of, you kind of wander in off the street, so to speak, and mm -hmm. there's the novel. And it just, you kind of walk with it along the street and then you just keep walking and you realize you're walking really in the same neighborhood, but there's an infinite <laughs> amount of roads to cover in the same neighborhood. Yeah. And of course, you're going right. in circles, but there, are, every time you go around, there's a different circle, and every time you go around, there's a little bit different circle. And again, this this richness out of richness that he squeezes out of stone, he squeezes out of one year. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know, yeah. I know this books, you know, like you know, Ulysses, you know, one one day, blah blah blah, right, but uh, but right. it's different. This is different somehow, and yet uh, also a magic trick in its own way. Yeah, you know, so well, it's sort of the it's. It stretches out in that in that sort of Borges metaphor of a map that almost co covers the entire territory. Right. Um, and yet, all you need is one little part of it. Um, but you need, but no, you don't. You need all the little parts of it, or not all of them, but enough of them so that you can get the idea that each of them in relation to each other is how we actually live. And yeah. yet... And yet there's a, you know, important oscillation between those exceptional moments, those heightened moments of other condition and the normal condition, um, the like of it now happens, which is translated as pseudo reality prevails um, in the um, Pike Sophie Wilkins version. Um, the literal translation is um, the like of it happens. The like mm. of it now happens. And it's about that repeatability, everything kind of going along the same way, going along the same way, going, and then you break off into the next part, um, the, the, the criminals, um, into the millennium, the criminals, which is the break of that. Well, um, exactly. Like that's, why, that's why I mentioned earlier, I think that, that it feels like the novel opens up at that point. It, it's like Absolutely. you had this, um, this kind of interiority, we're stuck in this kind of I think we're all kind of feeling like we're stuck in Ulrich's mind in volume mm -hmm. one, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's a very confining space, even though it's very rich. Um, but then when we get to the criminals into the millennium and the criminals, it just seems to be, uh, again, maybe reaching towards this other condition, you know, capital other condition uh, is yeah. reaching towards it. And he really seems to uh, kind of grab it or at least get get the mitts around it you know because <laughs> um, um, because really for me uh, the whole I, I my notes you should see my notes you you on a you a on you uh, agatha and ulrich agatha and ulrich it's it's all over my notes and they they circle mm. around each other like moths around a you know a candle or something mm -hmm. um i have this what did i write here uh, Ag agatha says this is the very last love story there can be mm -hmm. Uh, I, th I thought when I got to that point, I was like, this is, this is so interesting. Um, and she says, you will never love another woman after me. So this mm -hmm. love that they have between them um, lifts the novel from this uh, claustrophobic feeling and, and, and sort of points. It's a vector. It doesn't get us there, but it points. Because I think all it can do is point. 
uh, right? Because mm. as soon as you get there, if you stick around, it's ossified. You have to keep moving. Um, exactly. So it just, but it, it really, for me, it felt um, like an opening, like some sort of a, like somebody opened the window in a stuffy room. Not that, again, I didn't enjoy reading the volume one. It's just, I wasn't sure where I was, uh, you know, in space and time. And then suddenly, boom, it's just like, okay, well, they're, they're, they're going for it. They're going for it. Yes. <laughs> I sometimes feel that the first part before before Agatha arrives, it's almost like Ulrich making sure everyone he's making sure everyone knows how smart he is and mm. how, you know, rational he is, how cynical he is, how scientific he is. And then or, you know, Musial making sure everyone knows that. He's he's got this covered. He's looked into all the problems. He's looked into all the, you know, the He's tried everything. He's He's, He's tried everything. He knows what's bad. wrong with right. like wishy, what he, you know, wishy-washy mysticism and romanticism and idealism. He knows what's wrong with these things. So you can trust him when he goes to the edge and starts to go over into those realms. It's different than, you know, say like a Herman Hesse novel. It's different because he, he has this the foundation, foundation yes. Yes. of science and logic. And then I think that it, with Agatha, it's almost like she's like an alchemical drop. It's like a, a chemical drop of love that, you know, softens mm. him. Mm. But you see, it's leading up there. And the chapters, you know, leading up to it, he's starting to break. Even when he's that, that amazing scene with him, Ulrich and Arnheim, who are, you know, theoretically sort of enemies. It's, it's a love scene, really. Mm. I mean, Arnheim has his arm on his shoulder. They're looking into each other's eyes, there's this flowing between them. Mm. And, you know, it breaks off, but it's um, Ulrich starting to... There's intimations, fragment. intimations of that of that breakthrough. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, well, what about, what about this, this idea of it's not a novel, that it's a project? Um, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's, Beyond just the terminology of it, you know, I don't want to argue about terminology, but, but yeah, um, sure. as as Musil was obviously unknowingly reaching the end of his life, he kept on writing and writing and writing and writing. Do we have any, any idea from any kind of biographical or any kind of other material that he was going somewhere with this? Did, is there any mm -hmm. indication that there was? That he had an end in mind, or was this mm -hmm. going to be? Did he just pretend that he's going to live for another twenty, thirty years, like most of us do? Um, well, <laughs> let me just start with: he was a scientist, and he saw novel writing as a experimental project. He took it very seriously that he would take this person and that person and put them in this situation as if it were a laboratory, and see what happens to them. To, in order to explore these very important, very vital ideas, ideas about how we live and what's important, what is, what is meaningful, um, what's true, how do we know what's true. So he, he's setting up this system, and to be true to that experimental system, he really needed not to know what would happen. And it goes along with the idea of the utopia of the next step, which um, he talks about um, explicitly sort of in the novel, but also in the notes for the novel, some of which are at the end of, um, of the, the Knopf edition, but also a great deal in many of his other notes and uh, in his other works. But the idea is that you can't judge anything 
in by what it is. You have to judge it by what it sets in motion mm-hmm. after it. So it's um, if he's going to take that seriously, doesn't really know where he's going. He does know that you know. I think he does know that the novel's going to end um, with 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 the war with World War One. Um, there are many different notes to possible endings, but many they contradict each other. I mm. mean, it's possible that he was going to send Ulrich off to war the way that Hans Kostrup goes off to war at the end of um, The Magic yeah. Mountain. Right. It's possible that he would end, maybe he'd end the book with Ulrich writing the book, because there are these choices. What's Ulrich going to do? He's going to commit suicide, go to war, or write a book. Those are three, three of the choices <laughs> that he's given. Um, but... But I think we can be pretty sure that he was not going to tie it all up in a nice little knot, that he was going to leave it open. Yeah, I can't and that, that. Yeah, right. And that, and yet also we do know that uh, I mean, there are people, many people in my book argue very strongly against this who believe that, that the book was going to end with his rejection of the other condition as a viable. Oh, really? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people think that. And um, I think part of it is that because there's a deep, um, discomfort with mysticism in many people who love Musil because they're so into his logical, extremely intelligent mind. Right. But, um, there, there are also moments where he says that it failed. But um, my book is about kind of the idea of what failure might mean within the context of this. And I believe that the intent is that the attempt to make it last certainly fails. I mean, he has this idea that the two lovers, Ulrich and Agatha, their love would then expand out to everyone and it would somehow become this viable social. And and, and I don't, and I don't see that as being something that he took as a practical um, ending, but the idea that these, highest moments of experience gained through art, religion, possibly love, um, tears in the paper of reality, such as we're experiencing now um, globally, things that shake up our you know, everyday life and call us to motivated um, reflection, mm. that these moments actually had value in terms of how we live our everyday life, that they would lead us to ethical um, to an ethical aesthetic experience of life and um, somehow not precepts. He says it's not precepts of how to live, not what to do. Well, he's against any kind of ethical system. Right, right. How to live. I mean, ethics actually is a huge, also a huge element in the, in, in the work. Um, In fact, ethics and aesthetics seem to be kind of intermingled or, or, Mm -hmm like one of the same thing or treated as one of the same thing by Musil. Um, but I, I, yeah. I, I do love this. I, I do love this idea. I think I already talked about it, that, that he succeeds through his failure to finish this novel. It's a success. I, I'm going to call it a success. To me, it is a successful book. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, and I, again, I, I still have to finish all the posthumous stuff, but it, it no, already... There's a lot more that's not translated. I hate to tell you. Thousands oh, of pages but you know, but, in, you know in that, okay. how's that possible in the, in the modern age? This guy's a major writer. It's been a century. What's going on? Yeah, you know, I I think I can jump in here with with a couple of questions yeah, related hi. to that. And and one is that, um, I mean, 
you've 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 read him in the in the original in German. So so I think one thought would be if you can give us a sense of um, his prose and and his style uh, in German, because I, I don't really have any any sense of his of a of a uh, a particular style in the English translation. Mm. And then the second mm-hmm. piece would be, wh- where does he fit in in the larger picture of, of German literature? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I ask both those questions thinking about, say, French literature, which which I'm more comfortable with. And I think of, you know, Proust and when when Proust, mm-hmm. the, his, his sort of modernist uh, colleague, um, you know, his prose style was, was uh, a departure from what you saw with French literature, which was very sparse, simple prose uh, in the 19th mm-hmm. century. And, and, and Proust was a stylist. So I, I'm just curious for those who, of us who can't read German, um, you know, what does he write like and, and where does he fit in uh, in that canon? Okay. okay. So in terms of the German, I mean, you have to think about the fact that German readers are much more comfortable with extremely long sentences, right? So it's embedded in in the German language that because there are antecedent pronouns that that go back and and um, tell you what is being referred to, that you can kind of go on and on. But there's also a sort of ability to suspend where the sentence is going, where the idea is going for much longer than you mm. can in English. So that's that's challenging um, for a translator to try to keep that openness um, that goes on in the museal sentence. And I, and I think a museal sentence, even in translation, if it's done well, and it's done well, very well, um, in the um, you know, Sophie Wilkins and Burton Pike translation, it is a uh, actually an extraordinary um, like an object lesson. It teaches us how to think. You start yes. off somewhere and then you get <laughs> even deeper to more complexity. Something is proffered, it's taken back, it's questioned, it's offered a nuance, a variation, a multiplication, and so on. It goes on and until you get to the end and you've learned how to think by the time you get to the end of it, which is incredible. I mean, I think that if you think of in Kafka, you have a sentence that often by the very end of it, he's said something that completely contradicts what's in the beginning. And if you read carefully, you're you're unsettled. You feel very strange because your whole expectation is. And so the German sentence can do that. And they, you know, Mm. but with, um, it's hard to get that back into English because one, we're not trained to read that way. And also our grammar doesn't work that way. So you often have to cut the sentences into smaller bits Mm. um, and break them up. And also add sort of explanatory words sometimes to say what's being referred to. So the the challenge is to keep the melody and the tempo. It's an extremely light for such a heavy, heavy thing. And I have actually a beautiful quote from Burton Pike in his um, afterward, where he says, um, he, Musil, often writes on a level of semi-abstraction that is meaningful and focused in German but that only provides indigestion in English, the most ruthlessly <laughs> concrete of languages. I did mention so, I was going to need a thumbs at the end of this. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> did. Exactly. Yeah. But so there's the abstraction, philosophical, whoops, 
is, are you hearing me okay? Something yeah, yeah, went yeah. weird, but yeah. philosophical yeah. abstraction is something that the German language can handle in a much more um, scintillating way than yeah, with um, this, uh, Immanuel Kant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's so hard to read in English, Kant. So I, I take it it's it's similar uh, in that respect. Yeah. But I have this. I have this um, to... Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No. No. Go ahead, please. No, I was going to read a quote from um, the the conference you were supposed to be at <laughs> in April. Uh, uh, yeah. The announcement uh, by Hans George, oh, I'm mispronouncing his name, Hans Georg von Arborg. And here's the quote: uh -huh. In general, it seems to be a special quality of Musil's work that makes passages of semantic surplus or vacancy in his texts become more readable precisely in translation as if mm, exponentially yeah. accumulating meanings. Seen from this perspective, quote-unquote transgressive Musil translations and theories about Musil translations merely continue a mode of inquiry which Musil's own texts already contain and suggest. So comparative translation study thus genuinely opens up a dimension already present in Musil's own poetics. Does that, uh, does that ring true to you? Well, I think that's always possible but i i yes i mean i actually i actually translated that um from their german so i read the text pretty well but the, uh yes i mean i think it is true but i think that the translator wants to really avoid um explicitly explaining explicating well, museal you you want to you want to not do that um but there's always and i think georg steiner talks about this a lot the translation always does add something to mm. the text, and it also takes something from the text into one's own new language that wasn't yeah. there before. Um, so, but I mean, I think it might be interesting to think about. Um, I, w I was surprised when I heard you, I think, on the first podcast say that you didn't see that Museo's prose was experimental. You didn't think of it as it. Somebody said that it seemed kind of yeah, traditional. It didn't, yeah, it didn't come across to me as as you know, it's not it's not Joycean language because I, I agree. Yeah, in, English, I, in in he wrote in this language, so it didn't seem to be. I mean, yes, some sentences are very complex and long, and I I could recognize some aesthetic beauty in certain certain of uh, passages, but it didn't strike me as uh, you know, particularly. I guess because it wasn't written in English originally, so there's no yeah, way to give life. To English that way. I, I agree, I and 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 that's why I think again this provocative question: what is you know is the novel the the appropriate form for this? Because um, you know, a, 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 I mean, to 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 push back on what you just said a little, Roman. I mean, uh, a translation can be beautiful and stylistic. I mean, the the Moncrief translations of Proust are are works of art in and of themselves, and and, and should almost be read as a separate Proustian Moncrief experience, um, you know, compared to some of the more recent translations. Um, so, I, so, you know, Janice, I, I think I would agree with Roman on that, that I, I, I felt I was simply being uh, introduced to the intellect of Musil and, and I wasn't mm -hmm. being shown any of his um, uh, stylistic tics, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I had a very different experience, but I, th I think my experience is could be explained by the general idea of modernist fiction being a realm you go into that changes you, that mm. you actually undergo the ordeal of the 
of the characters in the book and that you I love become, that. So I felt when I first read it, I was completely unmoored. And I don't think just by the ideas. I think by the way the ideas were presented and the destabilization that occurred yeah. and the, the digression, the diversion, the, the sort of the suspension that happens, the way you're yeah. kind of led on and then and then turned upside down. And the way, yes, as I said, that the sentence teaches you how to think, that you are being that. really challenged and that that's a modernist practice. Yeah. I'm not saying that earlier works don't do that, but mm. I think... I, and, and I then, love and, that. And it's also... It's also shocking in many ways. It it um it challenges us morally and um, aesthetically. I, to... I have to ask you: Have you, by any chance, ever read um, the French modernist writer uh, Claude Simon? He wrote a, a book no. called the Flan- the Flanders Road. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just ordered I just ordered the book, and um, I was I was flipping through the intro, and um, the uh, uh, it was a professor introducing the book and. Uh, the description was very similar um, to what you said, a similar idea that when you enter this novel as a modernist novel, that you are you are you are going to be immersed in the the, you know, the psychological experience of the characters, in a sense, which in this case is um, a retreat uh, during the beginning of World War Two in, in Belgium. So mm. uh, that's a fascinating idea that that you are undergoing a an ordeal in, in, in some sense. Um, and I felt that, I mean, I felt that I was having a existential crisis and, you know, maybe I was having one anyway, but, and the funny <laughs> sort of trick of it was that I kept feeling as though everything he was talking about was exactly what I was thinking about. And it was so vitally essential to me. And then I realized later that it was because he had prepared me for that in that sort of circular um, back and forth way. There's this wonderful phrase that I, I mentioned in my book that um, that is from Nietzsche about how great writing is, um, it's a pun. Great writing looks backward and forward, and but he uses the word, the German words, rücksichtig und vorsichtig, which, which mean carefully. But carefully is looking backwards, rücksichtig, looking backwards and looking forward, forward, looking forward. And so the great writer and Nietzsche certainly embodies this, is always um, looking backward and looking forward. And there's a circularity of, of thinking and maybe taking a few steps forward and a few steps back. But if you're undergoing the existential ordeal of the characters, you're undergoing that as well with, with, the, with Ulrich and, you know, Agatha and everyone else. And, well, and yeah. I think the writing, oh, I was also, I was just wanted to say that Burton Pike to sort of answer a question that I, that Robert mentioned about, you know, you said it didn't seem like anything else. Um, when he, in his afterward, he also notes that when he first started working on it, he looked around for something in English that was like it, because that's one way to kind of try to, but he couldn't find anything. He couldn't so find anything. Well, <laughs> yeah. I guess what I, what I meant just, I'm, I don't want to like, there's no position to defend really, as far as reading yeah, it but, uh, on a prose level. Um, I'm a I'm a, a prose stylist junkie. I love English, yeah. specifically English, because I mean I know Russian is my native language, but I don't know it uh. so well that I can be you know I mean I can read Tolstoy, but it it, it doesn't it doesn't sing to me like um, like English does, um, unless I read Pushkin actually, and then it does sing. But um, mm. but 
you know, so I'm this this junkie who forever searches for these uh, for, for English pros like Henry Green really impressed me. Somebody, somebody does something different with the language, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. there's a difference. Uh, there's there's something something definitely unique to Musil in his prose, even in translation comes comes across. But it's just not um, the actual prose. Even though there's there's dense parts and it, like you said beautifully said that it teaches you how to think certain sentences you know certain sentences I really had to read like three or four times before I I, I really understood what was going on because there's so many shifts of tone and uh, the gates and and like you just described you know um, so I do enjoy that but it, I did enjoy that but it's not it doesn't give me that thrill of reading uh, mm-hmm. I guess a native English writer you know yeah. What I mean? Yeah, so I can. Missing, I can I and so. I always love that about books. So I, I, I yeah. kind of miss it a little bit here, and I so I, wish I knew yeah. German because I think I would get that feeling in German if I read. In German. If you get into the, I mean, the 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 posthumous papers, I think become much more experimental, yeah. and certainly the passages with Clarissa and going through her mind and her um, experiments with language um, start to utilize some of the um, techniques that Mizil was looking at in terms of that sort of primitive um, ritual and magic um, writing and things like that and sort of repetition and um, mm. images well, that, that are... Well, that have to finish because I, I, I still haven't finished. And I, like, I, like I keep saying, it's the novel seems to be moving in that direction. Now it's kind of this, yeah. this opening up that I mentioned. That's what that's part of it. Uh, it's also thematic, a thematic opening up. But, but the language is also seems to be... I, I, I feel more... Um, I feel more excited reading the second volume. I just feel more uh, somehow yeah. it's it's more up my alley somehow. And I mm. I tell you the first Absolutely. volume I read in the mid '90s in the older translation, and I mm-hmm. remember I was a much younger man, and I remember liking the book, but it it made this impression on me like uh, there's something there, but I'm not quite sure what it is, and it seems like it's not really translated that great, you know. Just so I I just kind of uh, I I sort of put it down and and didn't think about it anymore. And then this, this new translation came up and I just thought it was going to, going to be just like a little addition until I realized that the second volume is really where, where things get really interesting and really that's, mm-hmm. that's what people should be aiming at. They should be aiming at, at starting Musil, starting the man with our qualities and slowly, but surely continuing until the very last page, because it, it's, it's a novel mm-hmm. that, that transforms during the, during the novel itself. Um, there's some sort of a transformation yeah. that's almost imperceptible because it's such a lengthy work. So it happens over many pages, but, but, but you do feel like you're coming out of the woods into this clearing and maybe this, this, this other condition, the mystical part is the clearing. And though it doesn't show it to you directly because that would blind you, <laughs> right? that's impossible to do. Uh, but he certainly is sticking your nose right up front in, into it. Um, and you can smell it, you can sense it. Uh, you can you can almost taste it, and that's that's the mm-hmm. the beauty of the second volume and the posthumous stuff is that it gives you so many um, so many roadways into this clearing, um, but you have to get there yourself really. Uh, he, he's he's not gonna he's not gonna show it to you because it is magic, and if you if you explain the magic trick, then it's no longer cool, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, I don't know if I could try to say something about where Musil might fit in the uh, German tradition. Um, Oh, great. I think more, I I also maybe begin with where he fits in the European tradition because it's, you know, 
he was definitely um, very aware of all of the you know goings on of European modernism. Although you know he did, um, I think he claimed only to read a couple of pages of Proust in his in his life, and he spoke about Joyce a few times, not very um, generously. Yes, but, yes. Um, and I don't think he ever read you know, Virginia Woolf, but he um, he definitely had the same. Um, sort of project in mind and, and in terms of, of finding new ways to talk about interior experiences and to talk about time and um, the fragmentation of the individual and all those sorts of things, the possibilities of language, the limits of language, um, non-linearity. But he also was um, adding to that his experience as a scientist and a mathematician, his deep scholarship in anthropology, religion, psychology, philosophy, of course. And so that adds a lot to it that sort of maybe takes him slightly backwards into a more German tradition of philosophical thought um, that, you know, the kind of things that we were talking about before about self-culture and becoming, and also the whole problem of transcendence in terms of Kant, um, the, the sort of for German thinkers, very meaningful questions about what is real and what is um, imagined. How do we affect what is real? How do we create what is real? But in for me, to a very like a living way, not a you know, a, not an intellectual. Um, it seems to it seems to be that he that he approached philosophy uh, more as a psychologist because he worked as a as an experimental psychologist, right? He actually had that and behavioral psychologist. Behavioral mm-hmm. psychologist, yeah. Uh, so he had that kind of under his belt, and he had that kind of thinking, and um, because the. One of the one of the treasures of this of this novel of this book is is the this amazingly specific and very complex figurative language that that mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in one of these long sentences you can have uh, such a, um, a refined and just on the on the money on the point description of a certain psychological state or a certain. Uh, you know the way people just just describing just turning slightly, and this is slight something or something that makes you realize a lot more about what's going on um, through this really specific and complex figurative language. Uh, he just makes such fine distinctions as a, as a psychologist that I think anybody interested in psychology should read this book. I mean, it should be a textbook. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and, <laughs> and and just to sort of um, uh, expand on that with the problems of language, do we know Janice? I mean, I, I think it probably is is I would assume he was familiar with Wittgenstein. Um, do do we know was he was he engaged with the the Tractatus? Did he know Wittgenstein personally or his family? Or are, are there any clear well, we threads? Don't, we don't actually know. They did live for a short time in the same building or right next to each other wow. in Vienna. And, you know, it seems likely. I, I actually wrote an essay about Museum Wittgenstein that was very, um, you know, kind of risky because I'm not a Wittgenstein scholar. And, and of course, everyone that anyone, you know, that ever tried to describe Wittgenstein was told by him that they didn't understand him. But I do think that they are, you know, they're certainly sharing many of the same questions and coming from that similar, they certainly were both involved with the um, the Vienna positivist school. They knew them. They were both engaged with the same kind of reading. And they both, I believe, came to a similar um, 
the similar conclusion about um, the role of aesthetics, poetry, and um, the image yeah. as being the, the only sort of viable medium to express what is otherwise unexpressible. Yeah. Um, and that they both believed that this actually was um, possible and necessary. Yeah. I don't no, the, see Wittgenstein as like a nihilist who is turning against language. Um, and Musil certainly is not. He certainly believed in its um, capacity to do what it needed yeah. to do. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, and I mentioned on a previous uh, uh, podcast, the book um, Wittgenstein's Vienna, which which mm-hmm. is a, yeah. a fabulous book. And one of the things that I that I wasn't clear about, and this really made it uh, clear, is that you know when Wittgenstein came went to uh, to England uh, as a professor, he was his ideas and his books, and and he was treated as this uh, this oddity, this this person who seemed to come out of nowhere. But um, mm. but as, as you suggest, there was this rich uh, intellectual stew going on in Vienna. And in all of these intellectuals from all the various disciplines, we're, we're all um, cross-fertilizing one another. And within that stew, the kinds of things that Wittgenstein was, was obsessing on were not unknown or uh, you know, in, entirely mind-blowing to the crowd there. I mean, of course, the, the way he chose to express his ideas and the singularity of that is 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 obviously genius. But he he didn't come he didn't fall from the sky with these ideas, and and that was mm-hmm. important for me to understand. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. So, of, what, okay, one of the things I sort of keep a list of people who are both sort of materialists and mystics at once, or I would say sort of maybe people who are both transcendentalists and existentialists at once. So the sort of contradictory realm of, uh, of being, um, and I put Nietzsche in that realm and I put Musil in that realm and Goethe in that realm as somebody, you know, extremely, and even um, William Blake and um, Wittgenstein, I think you know, belongs there as well. These people who are sort of stretching the, um, not, m- going into what isn't there, not into the metaphysical, but trying to see, expand what we see of what is. And so it's sort of, um, Wittgenstein talks about this and Musil talks about it and Nietzsche talks about this as well, that you, we only see a little bit. And what we want to do is expand that seeing to see the things around the edges at the, at the border lines that really are there, but we usually don't see them. Beautifully said. I, I, I just recently saw a, a documentary on Joan Coltrane, and, and I think his mm-hmm. some of his later albums, uh, A Love Supreme, um, I, I think he would have loved what you just said, the idea yeah. of ex- <laughs> expanding what it is we can't quite see. Yeah, that's lovely. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the world of artists, of any artist, really, of a serious artist yeah. in any case. Yeah. You know, I... I I would um, uh, just sort of add that we're we're kind of rolling into our 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 normal hour or so. We've um, I think we've gone beyond the hour. Yeah, so, <laughs> Which is so weird. keep talking. Um, it's wonderful, but uh, just wondering if there are are you know uh, loose ends, other other singular ideas yes, that there are many that loose you guys want to. Yeah, there are many. That's the point, Rob. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> We'll never finish. This is an, this is going no, to be. No, we'll never point. finish. I wanted to make sure that it was. Clear. I mean, I, 
I think that Musial and Proust actually are dealing with many, many, many of the same questions, and they have very similar sorts of answers to them, even though, you know, Musial didn't want to maybe be bogged down by this sort of rival, um, and he didn't read him. But um, I, I think they're, they're, and I write about them both together a lot because I think they inform, the readings of both of them inform each other. And, um, that's what I mentioned to Rob and when Rob first uh, floated the idea of reading Musil and I, I think actually Paper Pills, Reem uh, our, 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 our mm-hmm. big fan uh, on Twitter she yeah. she unearthed this tweet that I sent to Rob maybe what like six, seven, eight years ago <laughs> that we <laughs> when I first joined Twitter I, I, and it wasn't I better be careful what I say Yeah. no no, no. I just, you were asking me about Musil, is it worth reading I'm like dude absolutely he's like a brainy Proust that's that uh, was my one, one kind of tag description, and uh, well, it's it funny kind of... because Proust said, "I'm sorry." No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, Proust said that you know ideas don't belong in a work of art, but there are a lot of ideas in you know in search of lost time, and they're similar ideas. They're about you know duration and um, repeatability, and about metaphor, and about experience, and about um, you know what happens when we make sort of aesthetic abstractions of mm. particularities, universals and particulars, those are all the same passionate concerns. I mean, but, you know, Proust is obviously much more aesthetic and um, you know, I love Proust. I, you know, I often say I love Proust more than Musil, but, yeah. but Musil has really informed the way I think in a, yeah. in a, in a I more mean, I, obvious as, way. As a Musil scholar, how, how do you, I, I mean, obviously, it probably applies to any any serious scholarly enterprise. But how do you how do you see your way through Musil as a scholar? I mean, there's just so much, um, and it seems to be uh, mostly a, 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 an industry that's happening in Europe, not that much in America. <laughs> right? Am I right? Because, well, because there is an industry in 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 Europe, but there is certainly not one here. I mean, we have Contramundum Press is you know fantastic, and you know Reiner has has taken the risk on um, you know we've done two books, and we're about to do a third, and um, it's wonderful. And we you know hope people will read them, but it's um, yeah, we'll we'll certainly try to do our little part in spreading the word because uh, I I really I I just uh, I've just hit over the head with this book and it's and it's slowly because uh, I haven't finished yet it's slowly seeping into my heart that's that's the thing interesting that's it, it comes lovely it, it comes from the head but it's slowly beginning to seep into my whole being and I I feel this weird um, this weird love You've affair got the with fever. this book. I got the fever I got the fever not yeah, the totally. not the other fever but the no, yeah. no. and I wanted. I want to um, point, um, well, Robert, you said you read a, uh, a conversation play or a... Uh... You know, I, I was being uh, um, a little facetious, but what, what I did to kind of really cle- sort of clear the, the, the slate, so to speak, is um, I turned to uh, a novel, actually. It kind of reads like a drawing room play, but it's um, by the British novelist Alan Hollinghurst. It's called The Line of Beauty. And I, I turned to, this, to this novel specifically... Um, because you know he he's a uh, um, very ornate prose. He mm-hmm. lingers. He lingers on yep. the cut of a woman's dress and and the sun going through. Mm-hmm. And and um, he's not particularly philosophical. Um, and he's 
you know, a devotee of Henry James, who is one of my gods. And so it was just the perfect um, way to to jump off from uh, from Musil. And, and I had just missed that. So, you know, yeah. uh, the ling- the lingering. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very understandable. I guess I, w- I was just going to say that I did just so I did just translate this play of Musil's that um, that I'm calling the Utopians right now. But it is in a way, a pared down skeleton of, of, you know, everything in The Man Without Qualities. And just as, you know, there's a poem, Musil wrote one, well, we know of this one poem, Isis and Osiris, that he wrote, that he said contains the novel in nucleo. But this play um, really does. And it's a lot easier to, it might not be as always as, you know, aesthetically enjoyable, in that density and the intense digression and variation of this giant novel world, blanket of woven images, but it very much um, comes right to some points that um, otherwise are hard to find in their larger novels. So I'm hoping that um, you know that people will enjoy that as a uh, as an when, when is that going to come out, Janice? Mm, well, it's a whole book of. Um, plays and writings on theater and we're hoping around november um which is um Liesl's birthday his his the day that he died is coming up by the way november 15th if anyone mm. wants to uh, somehow honor him november 15th but, so um, so what can you give us a little bit of an idea of what uh, w- april 15th sorry April fifteenth. What, what do we, April fifteenth is when he died. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what is what else is out there by Musil that we're we're not seeing because it hasn't been translated? Oh, is there just a ton well, of the stuff? essays. Well, oh, that that hasn't been translated. Yeah. Um. Well, there are a lot of fragments. There's a lot of fragmentary material. Lots Part of, of the many, novel, you know, or just in general. Excuse me. Like like the, there are fragments of of the man without qualities, or there are fragments of what? Of just, there, or just like stuff there are fragments written. of other versions of that were meant to go into the novel, but there are also fragments of other beginning writing projects. There are many fragments of plays. There are fragments of um, short stories, and the, the one the book the first book that we did with Contramund and Press was Thought Flights, and that's small prose. That's sort of theatonistic pieces, and the whole last part of it is fragments. But there are many more of those. Um, literary fragments that were either, you know, meant to go in in newspapers and weren't finished. Um, he did a lot of that kind of writing. Um, or there, there are. Um, there's this wonderful little utopian novel that he started that I I translated most of, but I haven't published anywhere. It's pretty funny. Um, there are letters. There are many more um, journal. And of course, there's no there's diaries. no biography in English, right? Uh, no, I I've been thinking about that, but um, oh please, no. please! There is project. a short in the um. There's a um the the Cambridge what is it the Cambridge Companion or the it's a German literature or something like that. I don't know what it is. I mean it. The Companion to Robert Musil has a short little biographical essay by somebody, so that might be something to look at. But I direct people to um, the wonderful book of essays um, that Burton Pike and David Luft translated called Precision and Soul. That's a fantastic book to read. Mm. And, of and course, that's on Musil or is it by Musil? By him. They're essays okay. by him. Okay. And they're fantastic and really um, will help you understand a lot more of you know, his beliefs oh. and ideas. Wonderful. I think and, I've be, uh, become an amateur uh, Musil scholar. 
can't quite Wonderful. leave this. I, 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 Rob's moved on, but I can't quite. I can't quite move on. I mean, I, I, <laughs> and uh, what probably well, ends is- happening with any big book that I read like that or any big project is that I, I end up sort of kind of finishing and then flailing around with nothing to and just going crazy and not not because yeah. you just I can't just pick up another book and read it right afterwards I just I can't no well once you catch the fever it, it's pretty dangerous you, you try yeah. to get away yeah. and then you can you get back I, I stopped for about five years but then I, I took a little token and I was back. I had a little dip in the reading here as well and I think a lot of readers of Musil of this book particularly experienced it because it's such a lengthy work is that you know you get enthusiastic getting into it and there's a Twitter support and other people are reading around you <laughs> and you get all into it and then and then uh, something and then a global not, pandemic comes not, not necessarily a <laughs> pandemic but let's just say normal, normal regular life goes on and, and you lose that enthusiasm a little bit and so that's mm-hmm. that happened to be um, kind of towards the end of the first volume and I picked up the second volume and I got all excited because I love big books and I cannot lie. Um, yes, uh, it felt too. like a puppy to me, you know, just the second volume. I just love carrying it around, that physicality of that huge book. And I, I, <laughs> I sort of kind of, you know, farted around a little bit, didn't read it, didn't read it, and then start reading it and really started getting into it and the pandemic hit and then I lost it a little bit, but I'm still, I'm, the fever is totally uh, in me now and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we had this chance to talk, Denise. Um, me too. I just you have cured his fever. Is, you know, uh, <laughs> well, we will make sure we keep we keep giving you um, more museal to read. There are the diaries, yes. of course. I mean, the selected diaries, which is a wonderful um, edition edited by um, Mark Mursky, basic mm-hmm. book. That's a mm-hmm. lot of fun. Wonderful, um, wonderful. So I'll I'll and, pick those up as I go as we go along. And, and we yeah. and we hope and we hope Denise that you um uh, you have an email list of all the uh, academics and scholars who were not able to go to this conference and you email them a link to this podcast oh, and say geez, you know no. No, you no, can say that, no. <laughs> um, this in, is our in, virtual in, in lieu of our conference. conference here you go to keep you going I will do I'm that sure I'm not I, sure how, if all of them speak English but um <laughs> a good many of them will. Well, yeah. I'm sure they have better I things will. to do. <laughs> uh, well, I guess so. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 lovely to talk and everything like that, but we're no scholars, you know. And besides, if, if, even if you wanted to talk scholarly, I mean, it's just uh, like we were talking earlier. There's so much to talk about mm-hmm. in this book, so we could just pick any 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 odd thing, uh, you know. Let's say the psychology of. Um, you know, small meetings or something, <laughs> uh, you know, of t- between two and four people. How does that work? And we could just examine the whole book in that light. Uh, Ooh, well, yeah, that reminds me of Goethe's elective affinities, which we could talk about. There you go. We have, there you go. Have and, you and two read that book? I have not. My uh, my my teacher, I, one of my professors at UMass, uh, kept on recommending that book to me, and she said, "You have to learn German to read this. Please learn German oh. to read this." I'm like, <laughs> and it kind of turned me okay, off. Well, <laughs> a little idea. You can read it in translation. I'm sure I could. It's yes. a wonderful book. And very well, a kind of echo. Museum's echoing it. Museum's echo. What about? Echo. I mean, we haven't talked about Rilke and and uh, Malte Brig. Oh. Uh, uh, there's so many other kind of echoes we could be talking about, you know. Certainly, Rilke is, was Musil's favorite poet, and I really? think it had to, a lot to do with the way that he used um, metaphor and language, and um, the sort of similar interest they both have in animism of the inanimate um, and um, expansion of time. 
and uh, through wow. you know sort of looking at an object and seeing what, what is it, it about the Germans? Alive. What is it about the Germans? Like uh, I know I know Bernhard is not German; he's Austrian, but close enough. You know, and he's got, Austrian too. So yeah, there you go. So, so what is Milka, what is Milka. is it the language? Is it the language that gives them that that um, incredibly deep philosophical pocket that they can sort of pull pull the rabbit out of? What's is it the language? Is it the culture? The German culture? What what? Yeah. I what think it? it goes together. I mean, insofar as the language informs the culture, and the culture informs the language, but certainly they are um, you know the language is much more um, able to bear um, philosophical thought. Because and I guess maybe that's why I'm particularly attracted to it because you know I majored in philosophy in college. I was always mm-hmm. kind of uh, thinking, trying to think uh, one abstraction above, uh, and maybe that's why. Because I, I just in general, I notice myself very, very much being attracted to Austrian German literature. Um, mm-hmm. Just, it just they just speak to me for some reason, you know. And I think maybe yeah. that's part of it. Uh, you know, and we, well, the, we Rus- did, uh, the Russian and. The Russians, I can read this. I can read the Russians in the original. And I can get into it, but but mm. I tend to be more of a sunny person, and so yeah, not that yeah. the <laughs> Austrians and Germans are particularly sunny, but um, no. but the Russians tend to uh, tend to uh, be a little depressing uh, without that uh, other condition popping up here and there. Um, yeah, you know, and and also I don't have, even though it's my native language, I don't have quite the the feel for it as I do for English, even though English is my third language and I, I still have an accent mm. and I really, you know, but I, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've learned, I sort of, I grew up on English as a, as a, as mm-hmm. a young adult and, and yeah. it, and even like reading the book of in Russian, um, and mm. he even said the book said that he he lost that that feel for the language. So he couldn't translate his novels. You know, he had his son mm. translate them. Uh, because he lost that feel, and if you read, if you read Lolita in Russian, it's it's shite. I mean, it's not shite. You know, it's not it's not bad, mm. but it's just not the same. Um, mm. But we're digressing, which is, I guess, appropriate. <laughs> yeah, we could keep going. I don't, um, yeah. So, any, but I did want to, what I said about the Russians, just that yeah. Musil loved Dostoevsky. He is one of his. Um, well, well of, of course his he did. Of course model. he did. He, yeah, the psychology. He the, has very few. So he's got Rilke, he's got Dostoevsky, um, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Emerson, um, Goethe, um, Novalis. Novalis, of course. And I don't right. know if people know Novalis, but he's a very famous, uh, wonderful German romantic writer. He yeah, wrote very romantic a, a, uh, German poet. Yeah. And he uh, he's quoted in Walter Pater. This might be a good a good um, note to ending as uh, in Walter Pater's. Um, the studies in the history of the Renaissance. He's no um, philosopherin, he says, he quotes it in German, philosopherin, philosophizing, says Novalis, is vivifizieren, making, vivifying, deflegmatisieren, deflegmatisieren, um, de, you know, deflegmatizing. <laughs> Philosophy is enlivening, it is, you know, getting rid of all that phlegm. It's a, uh, and that, that's pretty much you know, what the project is about, the novel project, making us feel more alive, be more alive. Yes, a little, a little more, more, a little more uh, visibility in the fog. Yes. <laughs> well, Janice, this has been, has been really wonderful. I really wish we could Lovely. just continue talking. We'd maybe like have a cup of coffee, 
have some food yes. and continue our conversation because I have I, I my <sighs> mind's on fire with this stuff and we yes. really appreciate well, you coming. Well, may we all meet <laughs> again in the real world in real yes. space and time. Yes, yes, go. let's 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 hope for better times. Yes. Robert, any final words, any thoughts? No, um, it's just been a pleasure and um you know, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who've been reading along with us, and I think they've been uh, really excited to get, um, you know, your perspective uh, on a book they've been reading now for you know many months, four or five months. So, yeah. so I yeah. think it's a it's a, a wonderful. I know there is no end, but a but a nice bookend, so to speak, of our you know, <laughs> three three podcast journey here through uh, Musil and Vienna. Yeah. So a hovering pause. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So so thanks so much for for coming on, and uh, I hope I hope so it's not much. the last time. So we we we'd uh, love to have you back. Uh, Going to be our German lit expert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm really not an expert in anything, but I well, would love to talk with you again. That would be that would be wonderful. All right, guys. Until um, next time. Take care, everyone. Yep. Thank okay, you. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Auf Wiedersehen. Thank you.